Hi everyone, it is now 5 p.m. on this Wednesday evening in Kingston, and you're listening to CFRC 101.9 FM, www.cfrc.ca. Welcome to this week's segment of Today in YGK with me, your host, Alexandra Fernandez. Today in YGK brings you need-to-know news about what's going on right here in our beautiful city of Kingston. From current news, special segments, and interviews with some amazing guests, I'm sure you'll find something of interest that gets you to tune in. If you have any news to share, be sure to contact me via email at news at cfrc.ca. So without further ado, let's get right into it. I hope you enjoy the show. You're listening to Today in YGK on CFRC 101.9 FM. I'm your host, Alexandra Fernandez. And today in our virtual studio with me, I have the leader of the Green Party of Ontario, Mike Schreiner. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us today. Alexandra, it's my pleasure to join you and um, looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So before we get into it, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and essentially how you came to this point where you're the leader of the party? Yeah, so I, I'm Mike Trainer, MPP for Guelph, leader of the Green Party of Ontario. And throughout most of my life, I've been very interested in politics. Uh, but in my early 20s, I became a bit disillusioned with sort of mainstream electoral politics because I felt big money had too much influence in politics. <laughs> and I'm still am working hard to reduce the influence of big money in politics, though it certainly got much better. And in the course of doing a number of, uh, of jobs, like I really thought, okay, well, if I'm kind of disillusioned with politics, I can change the world by making the food system better. So I also was a part of starting up a nonprofit organization uh, promoting local food and farmers, which actually brought me to Kingston a number of times oh, awesome. with, a, with a lot of uh, farmers in the region, uh, as well as local chefs and, and, and others. And, um, and then at the time I was doing that work, I recognized that you know, there are just certain barriers to accomplishing some of the things that I wanted to see accomplished that came from public policy and that I really needed to get engaged in electoral politics. And at that time, this was, you know, 2005 or so, the Green Party was really starting to be this new political um, force, I guess, or party that was starting to emerge. And it really spoke to three areas that I'm most concerned about is policies addressing the climate and ecological crisis, policies to address uh, income inequality and um, systemic inequalities, racism, et cetera. And the third is making our democracy better, stronger. And the Green Party really had, I thought, bold and innovative policies around addressing those issues. And so then I did some research and really looked at the values that all Green Parties across the world share and mm-hmm. that those really spoke to me. So I started getting involved in the Green Party and uh, ultimately started as a volunteer, um, ran in a by-election, decided to run for leader. And then ultimately after uh, almost a decade, about eight years of really hard work, wow. was Ontario's first Green MPP. So it's certainly not the easy road to getting elected, but uh, for me, the right road. Okay, that sounds really amazing. Congratulations on all that um, great work. Yeah. Um, so the Green Party recently put out the housing strategy that outlines nine strategies to battle unaffordable housing and inaccessible housing here in Ontario. So can you please give us a brief summary of these strategies and why these nine are essentially the key to creating more affordable housing here in the province? 
Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, our, our, our plan is really about how do we build livable, affordable communities? And the nine strategies rest on three pillars, building connected, affordable, sustainable communities. And I think, um, you know, we've had a housing affordability crisis in Ontario that's been building ever since the 1990s. And it really reached a breaking point during COVID. I mean, we've mm -hmm. seen um, tent encampments of unhoused people, people experiencing homelessness throughout cities and communities across Ontario. We have so many young people who can't afford to buy a home, in some cases even barely afford to rent a home. I just was in a previous uh, interview right before this with a seniors uh, or a station a radio interview focused on seniors issues, talking about what a challenge so many seniors have in wanting to downsize and having an affordable place to live to do that. And so it's affecting people across all demographics, age groups, income levels. And so one of the first things that we're proposing is, is that government needs to get back into housing again. What happened in the 1990s was uh, up until that point, both the federal and provincial government was very involved in housing. They stopped getting, they backed out of housing in the 1990s. And that's when the affordability crisis really started to grow. Mm -hmm. And so we're proposing that the province build 100,000 affordable housing spaces over the next decade. And that we focus on building an additional uh, 60,000 permanent supportive housing spaces with wraparound mental health and addiction services that are really important to addressing chronic homelessness. Um, to me, that's the foundation building um, affordable communities, but we can't stop there. We have to look at ways in which we change our land use planning rules that allow for um, what some people would call distributed density, missing middle, um, uh, uh, human scale density, uh, and, and in a sense, getting past this false choice the kind of the three legacy parties in Ontario present that either it's tall or sprawl. Mm -hmm. And so we have huge opportunities in Ontario uh, to um, have, uh, you know, to use our existing built environment in a more efficient way to right. increase housing supply, which will help reduce the increase in housing costs and do it in a way that doesn't pave over our farmland, our wetlands, and the places we love in Ontario. Mm -hmm, definitely, yeah. Um, and, you know, kind of bringing in um, the Kingston factor into this, you know, in Ki the Kingston area here, um, you know, there's kind of always been a concern in regards to affordable housing. In 2018, we had a vacancy rate of only 0.6% here in the region, which is incredibly low. Um, and over those last three years, it has increased to 3.2%, which is the provincial average. Um, but can you answer this question that why do some cities experience such low vacancy rates and what changes can be made to increase the rate and bring it to at least an average or even above average? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm from Guelph and Kingston and Guelph have a lot of similarities, similar size in both uh, communities that have universities and colleges that are really important to the life of our communities, mm -hmm. but it also, the student population can put additional pressure, particularly on the rental market. And so that's one of the reasons it's so important to increase housing supply and do it in a way that doesn't 
you know, pave over the farmland that feeds us or the wetlands that protect us from flooding and clean our drinking water. And so one way to address that is having government actually participate in building more affordable housing units. Another way to address that that can help increase affordability of home ownership is to make zoning changes that allow people to build laneway housing and basement apartments and secondary suites, turn houses into you know, triplexes or quadplexes. Right. Uh, that increases housing supply in a way that um, utilizes our existing built environment in a more efficient way. For those homeowners, it can create a new revenue stream or for a prospective homeowner, a new revenue stream that makes it more affordable for them to be a homeowner. And it increases housing supply, which then takes pressure on increases in rents. I mean, we do need to make sure as we build new supply, we have things like rent control in place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people can't keep jacking up rents and, and pushing tenants out of their homes as well. But our focus really is on how do we increase supply? How do we ensure that increased supply is affordable and is built in a way that doesn't destroy the places we love and the farmland we depend on. Mm -hmm, definitely. And I love that idea of, you know, um, converting things into quadplexes, triplexes, um, having, you know, suites and stuff, different additions, because not only does that benefit those who will, you know, have access to that housing, but also, like you said, another revenue stream for families who may need it as well. Yeah, well, I think a lot of young families, especially I hear over and over again, uh, are finding it really challenging because, I mean, just the price of houses have gone up so much. And so mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many uh, young people in particular who are like, I'll never be able to afford a home. And that's just wrong. And so coming up with innovative strategies about how to help um, young people be able to afford a home, but also having additional revenue streams that will help pay uh, mortgages and help make home ownership more attainable while at the same time increasing housing supply. And also that gentle distributed density also leads to more livable connected communities. I mean, I think an important part of addressing housing affordability is also to ensure that we live in communities that we can easily walk to, to work or walk to the local businesses we wanna support. Our children can walk to school. We can walk to the amenity and services we need. We can walk to parkland and be able to access nature. I mean, especially in this heat, like we all wanna make sure that, you know, and, and just even COVID, I think people are hungry uh, to be able to be able to be outside. It's also about making sure um, home ownership and or rental uh, home, rental homes are affordable and accessible for people, but also making sure they're situated in great communities that um, are vibrant and livable. Mm -hmm, definitely. And that's a very good point to raise for sure. Um, and um, I was going through the housing plan and reading the document, and um, I noticed that strategy four is to fund urban and rural Indigenous housing. Um, yes. The plan outlines that 14% of Indigenous households are left with a need for affordable housing, but have very limited options. So can you tell us a little bit more about what this would look like for the Indigenous community, and what are some of your plans to incorporate this? Yeah, well, first of all, um, and, and you've noticed, noted that is... Um, a disproportionate uh, number of people who are either unhoused or they're in, in precarious housing situations. 
And to me, that is a legacy of colonialism and systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to truly have a truth and reconciliation process, if we're going to dismantle colonialism and systemic racism, then we have to ensure that housing affordability is inclusive for everyone. And so it's particularly important to have an indigenous led housing strategy. And that's exactly what we're proposing, including um, having a identified uh, proportion of, our, of the 60,000 permanent supportive housing units, 22,000, identifying the, those specifically for indigenous peoples, um, but also ensuring that as we support housing co-ops, as we support social housing, uh, that there are housing spaces that are indigenous led mm -hmm. and are funded in a way that are affordable for indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm, definitely. And that's such a important um, strategy to have, especially with all the different conversations that are, um, you know, currently coming into light about Indigenous communities and the sort of disparities that they face in comparison to, um, well, more privileged people in our community, for sure. Well, and I'm hoping that, um, you know, the, just the horrific tragedy and trauma that so many people are going through right now with the discovery of stolen children Mm -hmm. uh, at, in unmarked graves in residential schools will open more people's eyes to the need to, you know, seek out the truth and then engage in a process of reconciliation. And part of that is ensuring that Indigenous people have access to clean drinking water, affordable housing, have access to, you know, social services, have access to mental health supports, that's an important part of addressing um, colonialism uh, in our country. Mm -hmm, definitely, definitely agree with that. The next strategy in the plan is to end chronic homelessness. And you touched on this a little bit earlier. For our listeners, can you outline why there is such a large number of homeless people across the province and why that number just seems to you know, keep growing? Yeah, well, I mean, part of the reason we have an increasing number of people who are experiencing homelessness is that one, there just isn't enough homes for everybody and there isn't enough homes that are affordable for people. But we also have to recognize that for some individuals, there are more complicating challenges that they face that require things like permanent supportive housing with wraparound mental health and addiction. People in the unhoused population in our communities are people who are facing mental health challenges and in cases, addiction challenges as well. And mm -hmm. so just providing housing for those folks um, won't fully address their needs. And so investing in permanent supportive housing with wraparound mental health and addiction services are a way to stabilize those individuals' lives, which improves their well-being, improves the well-being of our communities, and helps us save money. Uh, we know that for every $10 invested in permanent supportive housing, it saves $22 in other costs, primarily related to our healthcare system and our justice system. And so a, an important part of building livable, affordable um, communities is to ensure that we provide permanent housing with permanent wraparound supports for experiencing mental health and addiction challenges. Mm -hmm, definitely. We had um, 
last summer in the Kingston area, we had like a really big um, encampment basically of like right. people cool. living in Bell Park and stuff. Yeah. And um, then, you know, there was like the integrated care hub that opened up here and then they transferred to like a different location in November. And um, it's a really great service. But like you said, it's not something permanent. It does offer like mental health services, counseling, addiction services, and all that stuff. But it is important that we see more permanent um, solutions for folks who are struggling. Absolutely. And there's a lot of talk of, well, why don't these folks just get a job? You hear that from some people. Yeah. There are so many studies that show that the key to being on a pathway to employment is to have stability in your housing. Mm -hmm. And so even temporary supports with wraparound services while beneficial and good and but it doesn't fully solve the challenge that a a number of unhoused folks face which is where they need to have stability in their life that stability comes from permanent housing it then comes from the wraparound mental health and addiction supports and then once once those are in place then people can start putting themselves on on a path uh, to employment Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. Housing, shelter is such a fundamental need um, for everyone. Yeah. Um, and what can individual municipalities do to combat increasing numbers of homelessness and provide better services and options for its residents that are suffering through this? Yeah, well, you know what, I would argue, um, I think there's a bigger role for the province and the the federal government to play. Definitely. And so one housing strategy is to upload 50% of the shelter and social housing costs from municipalities to the province uh, because the province has more fiscal capacity to um, provide those services. Right. And so one of the challenges that, that happened that contributed to the housing affordability crisis is that in the 1990s, um, the conservative government of the day downloaded those costs onto municipalities and municipalities don't have the same fiscal tools that the province or federal government have. Right. And ironically, actually, the fiscal tool that municipalities have are property taxes. And as property taxes go up, that actually makes home ownership even less affordable. Yeah. <laughs> so having the so municipalities play a vital role, there's no doubt about it. But I just really want to emphasize the point that upper levels of government uh, have to play, play a bigger role they have to take the fiscal burden off in municipalities where municipalities can really play an important role is through um, zoning changes and land use planning to make sure that there isn't things in place known as exclusionary zoning that exclude things like um, laneway suites, uh, laneway housing and secondary suites, tiny homes, other co-housing, housing options like that mm-hmm. that help us better utilize our existing built environment. So that's a key role that the, that the municipalities can play and also making sure they work with the provincial government to make sure we have a public engagement and consultation process around housing developments and particularly affordable housing projects that are in a way that are inclusive of, of all voices. Mm -hmm, Definitely. That's a great argument to be raised for sure. Um, You also focus on the importance of getting to places quicker, more efficiently, and having these vibrant communities to live in. Can you elaborate more on the significance of this and why it would have, um, elaborate more on the significance of this and why it would have a positive impact? 
Yeah, well, you know, some people have described our, our housing paper as a visionary, I think Toronto Star called masterclass plan in addressing the affordability crisis. But others have also described it as a climate infused housing plan as well. And building connected, uh, affordable, sustainable communities is vital to addressing the climate crisis. The biggest driver of climate pollution in Ontario is the transportation system. And that's primarily being driven by sprawl development. And the sprawl development also paves over farmland, wetlands and things like that, which threatens our food security, but also exposes us to more things like more flood risk. And so by building uh, more compact, connected, walkable communities, it means that people have to spend less time commuting, which means they have more time for family. It saves them money. Um, sprawl development costs municipalities huge amounts of dollars in additional infrastructure costs. Um, and so if we can build more connected communities where you, know, you can easily walk or cycle to work, you can access the local businesses you wanna support, you can have access to the services and amenities you need, you can, your children can walk to school. Those are communities that improve people's health and well-being. There's less pollution. You can be more active. They tend to be communities that support local businesses and have more vibrant mm -hmm. uh, uh, local economies. And they're communities that significantly reduce uh, climate pollution and help us address the climate crisis in a way that helps people save money. And I want to just quickly note on that too, another important component of our plan, um, a, a $5 billion green building retrofit program that would leverage an additional $80 billion of private capital investment, create over 800,000 jobs, reduce utility costs for homeowners and renters by $5 billion a year, and significantly reduce climate pollution. So we're really looking for win-win solutions. Mm -hmm. A win that'll save us money, a win that will reduce climate pollution, a win that will benefit our economy by creating more jobs, and a win that will make our communities more livable, affordable, and sustainable. Yeah, that sounds really, really great. Um, and in thinking about the climate crisis going on, um, with all these different strategies and ways to deal with um, affordable and accessible housing, um, how will you ensure that these strategies and plans will positively contribute to the climate crisis and minimize any um, negative impacts on our environment? Yeah, well, I mean, the first one is, is just by essentially saying, hey, no more sprawl in Ontario. We simply can't afford sprawl development. We can't afford it from a financial perspective uh, because the infrastructure costs are so high. We can't afford it from a climate perspective because we can't continue to have transportation uh, emissions driving climate pollution. Mm -hmm. We really can't afford it from a health, well-being, quality of life perspective. Like nobody wants to spend hours in a car commuting to work or having to drive long distances to you know, access the services uh, we need. And so building our communities in a way that doesn't contribute to sprawl is vitally important. There are appropriate places for high-rise buildings. There's no doubt about that. But we also wanna make sure we build out our communities in a way that we have distributed gentle density. And, and so by doing that, and then by ensuring that those buildings 
are highly inefficient or highly efficient, sorry, and don't contribute climate pollution themselves, we can build those livable, affordable, sustainable communities in a way that um, begins to address the climate crisis by reducing pollution. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add before we end off? Yeah, I would say, you know, in light of the COVID pandemic and in light of these extreme heat um, we're, we're experiencing, I mean, especially on the West Coast, it's just the importance of ensuring that our communities and particularly low-income communities have access to parkland, green space, um, one, to help mitigate the heat island effect we have in, in our communities, but to also ensure that people have access to those kinds of amenities. I think during COVID, we've all certainly appreciated the opportunity to access nature, particularly if you live in denser urban environments. And so as we build out and plan our communities is to make sure that those, those human elements uh, particularly when it comes to things like accessing nature, especially for low-income communities, because oftentimes those are the neighborhoods that have the least access to park space, um, community facilities, and, and other amenities that improve people's quality of life and their health. Mm -hmm. Definitely, yeah. And can you explain maybe for people like how um, marginalized communities are affected by the climate crisis, how climate kind of like plays into um, marginalized communities. Yeah, well, there, there's no doubt that the first and worst hit by the climate crisis tend to be marginalized communities. Uh, oftentimes, um, those are the communities that don't have access to things like green space, don't have access to uh, higher quality infrastructure or oftentimes built in places that are more subject to flooding, um, are built in places that have uh, heightened levels of air pollution. And, and so a lot of that, quite frankly, is driven by environmental racism. Mm -hmm. And so as we think about addressing systemic racism and breaking down those barriers, we also have to look at how environmental racism plays into that as well. And things like elevated asthma rates, elevated diabetes rates, uh, and other uh, health complications that people who um, live in lower income or more marginalized neighborhoods and communities experience. Mm -hmm. And that's a, such a great topic to be discussed, environmental racism, um, because I think when we think about environmentalism, climate change, all those things, you don't really see how, um, some people may not see how race kind of plays into that. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's sometimes you can see, I mean, think, so think about it from the perspective of somebody who is just struggling to get by every, every month. Um, climate seems like an abstract, far off challenge when your immediate need is, you know, how do I pay the rent? How right. do I put food on the table? How do I make sure, you know, my family is cared for? Um, but oftentimes uh, the climate crisis is make challenges even bigger for people. And so that's why as we address the climate crisis, we have to do it through an equity lens that ensures that we address issues around environmental racism. Mm -hmm. 
Um, well, thank you so much for chatting with me about the housing strategy um, that the Green Party of Ontario has developed. It was such an interesting conversation, um, taught me a lot, and hopefully also teaches our listeners a lot. So thank you so much again for coming on air and discussing this with me. You know, my pleasure. It's such an important issue to address the housing affordability crisis and look forward to any opportunity to talk about our, our strategy. Mm -hmm. Thank you again, Mike. Bye now. Well, that was an amazing conversation that we had with Mike Trainer. Thank you so much again for joining us on CFRC 101.9 FM to discuss the housing strategy that the Green Party of Ontario has put out on their website. For more information on the Green Party and their platform, you can visit gpo.ca and find more information and you can find the full document. Thank you so much for tuning in to Today in YGK on CFRC 101.9 FM. Thank you for listening to Today in YGK, produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples.